1: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 301. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week's show, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. It's a scary job market out there, folks, or lack thereof. People don't want to talk about it, lots of scarcity. Fear Factor would've been a much scarier show if they just took those people in their 20s and asked them to figure out how to have careers. But we all find our way eventually, don't we? From the strippers of the North Pole to Sue selling seashells by the seashore like a dumb (laughs) From the robot that saw a cookie once and is now in charge of making chips ahoy, to Kanye West slowly pacing around a room to avoid a bee while insisting he's not scared of it. We all have that thing that we do. It's the rare individual, though, that gets paid to do what he or she loves. Well, the good news is uh, that your colon looks great. Possibly the best I've ever seen. The bad news is that I'm just a hobo with a hobby. When people ask me if I'm working hard or hardly working, I like to stab them in the hand with a pen and ask if they're hurting hard or hardly hurting. And then I check my Twitter again because Back to the grind. Let's listen to a 100-word story. This week's Drabble is called My Robot, and it comes to us from Christopher Munro, a.k.a. Munzee, a.k.a. Grand Drabbler of the Mighty Fjords and all lands west of the Vale. He's from Canada, but don't hold that against him, because that's a skinned raccoon. What are you even doing with that? Jesus. Anyways, here goes. I've built a robot with a smaller robot inside and a smaller robot in there and another in there. It's smaller robots all the way down basically, like Russian nesting dolls. It took a lot of design work, but I think it was worthwhile. Take them apart if you'd like, somebody eventually will. The temptation to see how far down they go is just too great and when the last robots opened, nanobots will swarm forth, eradicating all biological life from this world, gray goo style. Wait, what? What do you mean, why? Some things you do just because you can. And that line is actually a perfect segue into our feature story this week, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned, by Wells Tower. Wells Tower is the author of a short story collection by the same title, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. His short stories and journalism have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, McSweeney's, The Paris Review, The Anchor Book of New American Short Stories, The Washington Post Magazine, and elsewhere. He received two Pushcart Prizes and the Plimpton Prize from The Paris Review. He divides his time between Chapel hill north carolina and brooklyn new york the story is read to you by the epic thunder from down in the continent of australia graham dunlop you've heard graham's rasped whiskey soaked voice many times here on the Travelcast, cast and we're happy to have him back on the show graham's everywhere in the podcast fiction world he's the host and sound producer for the young adult fiction podcast cast of wonders as well as the sound producer for the horror podcast pseudopod so we like to think that he's more than capable Anyways, without further ado, we bring you Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned by Wells Tower.
2: Just as we were all getting back into the mainland domestic groove, somebody started in with dragons and crop blights from across the North Sea. We all knew who it was. A turncoat Norwegian monk named Nadod had been big medicine in the dragon and blight circuit for the last decade or so, and was known to bring heavy ordnance for whoever could lay out some silver. Scuttlebutt had it that Nadod was operating out of a monastery on Lindisfarne. Whose people we'd troubled on a pillage and consternation tour through Northumbria after corn harvesting month last fall. Now bitter winds were screaming in from the west, searing the land and ripping the grass from the soil. Salmon were turning up spattered with sores, and grasshoppers clung to the wheat in rapacious buzzing bunches. I tried to put these things out of my mind. We'd been away three long months harrying the Hibernian shores and now I was back with Pila, my common-law, and thinking that home was very close to paradise in these endless summer days. We'd built our house together, Pila and me. It was a fine little wattle and daub cabin on a pretty bit of plain where a wide blue fjord stabbed into the land. On summer evenings, my young wife and I would sit out front, high on potato wine, and watch the sun stitch its orange skirt across the horizon. At times such as these you get a good humble feeling like the gods made this place, this moment, first and concocted you as an afterthought just to be there to enjoy it. I was doing a lot of enjoying and relishing and laying around the rack with Pila though I knew what it meant when I heard those flint-edged winds howling past the house. Some individuals, three weeks' boat ride off, were messing up our summer and would probably need their asses whipped over it. Of course, Jaff Fairhair had his stinger out even before his wife spotted those dragons winging it inland from the coast. He was boss on our ship and a fool for warfare. His appetite for action was so terrifying and infectious, he'd once riled up a gang of Frankish slaves and led them south to afflict and maim their own countrymen. He'd gotten in four days of decent sacking when the slaves began to see the situation for what it was and underwent a sudden change of attitude. Diaf had been fighting his way up the Rhine Valley, making steady progress through a half-assed citizen's militia of children and farmers when the slaves closed in behind him. People who were there say he turned absolutely feral and began berserking with a pair of broad axes, cheering through the lines like corn kernels on a cob, and that when the axes broke he took up someone's severed leg and used it as a club, so horrifying those gentle provincials that they fell back and gave him wide berth to the ship. Jaff was from Hedidby Slesvig up to Slee Fjord, a foul and rocky locality whose people take a worrisome pleasure in the gruesome sides of life. They have a habit down there. If they don't like a child's looks when he slides from the womb, they pitch him into the deep and wait for the next one. Jaff himself was supposedly a colicky baby, and it was only the beneficence of the tides and his own vicious tenacity that got him to the far beach. When his father tried to wash him from the world. "'He'd been campaigning for payback ever since. "'I guess I was with him on a search and destroy tour "'against Louis the Pious, "'and with my own eyes watched him climb up over the soldiers' backs "'and stride across their shoulders, skiving skulls as he went. "'On that same trip, we ran low on food,' and it was Diaf who decided to throw our own dead on the fire and have it last night's mutton when their stomachs burst. He'd been the only one of us to dig in, apart from a deranged Arab along as a spellbuster. He reached right in there, scooping out chewed-up victuals with a shank of pine bark. Greenhorns, he called us, the firelight twitching on his face. Food's food. If these boys hadn't gotten their threads snipped, they'd tell you the same thing. So Djarf, whose wife was a sour, carp-mouthed thing and little argument for staying home, was agitating to hop back in the ship and go straighten things out in Northumbria. My buddy Gnut, who lived just over the stony moraine our Wheatfield backed up on, came down the hill one day and admitted that he too was giving it some thought. Like me, he wasn't big on warrioring. He was just crazy for boat, He'd have rowed from his shack to his shithouse if somebody could invent a ship whose prow could cut the sod. His wife had passed years ago, dead from bad milk, and now that she was gone, the part of Gnut that felt peaceful in a place that didn't move beneath him had sickened and died as well. Peeler saw him coming down the hill and scowled. Don't need to guess what he'll be wanting, she said, and headed back indoors. Gnut ambled over the hummocky earth and stopped at the pair of stump chairs Peeler and I had put up on the hill where the view was so fine. From there the fjord shone like poured silver, and sometimes you could spot a seal poking his head up through the waves. Gnut's wool coat was stiff with filth, and his long hair so heavy and unclean that even the raw wind was having a hard time getting it to move. He had a good crust of snot going in his moustache, not a pleasant thing to look at. But then, well, he had no one around to find it disagreeable. He tore a sprig of heather from the ground and chewed at its sweet roots. Jaff get it ye yet? he asked. No, not yet, but I'm not worried you'll forget. He took the sprig from his teeth and briefly jammed it into his ear before tossing it away. You gonna go? Not until I hear the particulars I won't. You can bet I'm going. A hydra flew in last night and ran off Rolf Heyerdahl's sheep. We can't be putting up with this shit. It comes down to pride is what it comes down to. Helgnot, when would you get to be such a gung-ho motherfucker? I don't recall you being so proud and thin-skinned before Astrid went off to her good place. Anyhow, Linda's farm's probably sacked out already. If you don't recall, we pillaged the tyrite of those people on the last swing through, and I doubt they've come up with much in the meantime to justify a trip. I wished Knut would go ahead and own up to the fact that his life out here was making him lonely and miserable, instead of laying on with his warrior man routine. I could tell just to look at him that most days he was thinking of walking into the water and not bothering to turn back. It wasn't combat he was after. He wanted back on the boat, among company. Not that I was all that averse to a job myself, speaking the abstract, but I was needing more sweet time with Peeler. "'I cared more for that girl than even she probably knew, "'and I was hoping to get in some thorough love-making "'before the hay-cutting month was underway "'and see if I couldn't make us a little monkey. "'But the days wore on and the weather worsened. "'Pila watched her closely and the sadness welled up in her "'as it often did when I'd be leaving. "'She cussed me on some days, "'and others she'd hold me to her and weep. "'And late one evening, far toward dawn, the hail started.' It came suddenly with the rasping sound a ship makes when its keel scrapes stone. We hunkered down in the sheepskins, and I whispered soothing things to Peela, trying to drown out the clatter. The sun was not yet full up in the sky when Djarf came and knocked. I rose and stepped across the floor, which was damp with cold dew. Diaf stood in the doorway, wearing a mail jacket and shield, and breathing like he'd jogged the whole way over. chucked a handful of hail at my feet. Today's the day, he said with a wild grin. we got to get it on. Sure, I could have told him thanks anyway, but once you're back down from one job, you're lucky if they'll even let you put in for a flat fee trade escort. I had to think long term, me and Peeler and any little jits we might produce. Still, she didn't like to hear it, When I got back in bed, she tucked the covers over her face, hoping I'd think she was angry instead of crying. The clouds were spilling out low across the sky when we shoved off. Thirty of us on board, Gnut rowing with me at the bow, and behind us a lot of other men I'd been in some shit with before. Some of their families came down to watch us go. Oral Stender fucked up the cadence waving to his son, who stood on the beach waving back. He was a tiny one, not four or five, standing there with no pants on, holding a baby pig on a hide leash. Some of the others on board weren't a whole lot older, rash and violent children, so innocent about the world they'd just as soon stick a knife in you as shake your hand. Gnut was overjoyed. He laughed and sang and put a lot of muscle into the oar, me just holding my hands onto it to keep up appearances. I was missing Pila already. I watched the beach for her and her bright red hair. She hadn't come down to see me off, too mad and sad about me leaving to get up out of bed. But I looked for her anyway, the land scooting away with every jerk of the oars. If Noot knew I was hurting, he didn't say so. He nudged me and joked and kept up a steady flow of dull merry chatter, as though this whole thing was a private vacation the two of us had cooked up together. Diaf stood at his spot in the bow, the blood in his cheeks. His high spirits were wearying. Schleswigers will burst into song with no provocation whatever, their affinity for music roughly on a par with the wretchedness of their singing. He screeched out a cadence ballad that lasted hours, and his gang of young hockchoppers choppers howled along with him and gave no one any peace. Three days out, the sun punched through the dirty clouds and put a steely shimmer on the sea. It cooked the brine out of our clothes and got everybody dry and happy. I couldn't help but think that if Nadod was really as serious as we thought he was, this crossing would be a fine opportunity to call up a typhoon and drown us all like cats. But the weather held, and the seas stayed drowsy and low. We had less light in the evenings out here than at home, and it was a little easier sleeping in the open boat without an all-night sun. Knut and I slept where we rode, working around each other to get comfy on the bench. I woke up once in the middle of the night and found Knut dead asleep, muttering and slobbering and holding me in a rough embrace. I tried to peel him off, but he was large and his hard arms stayed on me tight as if they'd grown there. I poked him and yelled at him, but the big man would not be roused, so I just tried to work up a little slack to where he wasn't hurting my ribs, and I drifted back asleep. Later I told him what had happened. "'That's a lot of horseshit, he said, his broad face going red." "'I wish it was,' I said, "'but I've got bruises I could show you. "'Hey, if I ever come around asking to be your sweetheart, "'do me a favour and remind me about last night.' He was all upset. "'Go to hell, Harold. You're not funny. "'Nobody thinks you're funny.' "'I'm sorry,' I said. "'Guess you haven't had a whole lot of practice lately "'having a body beside you at night.' He rested on the oar a second. "'So what if I haven't?' "'Thanks to the easy wind bellying our sails,' We crossed fast and sighted the island six days early. One of the hawk-choppers spotted it first, and when he did, he let everybody know it by cutting loose with a long, obnoxious battle-howl. He drew his sword and swung it in figure eights above his head, causing the men around him to scatter under the gunwales. This boy was a nasty item, with a face like a buzzard's, his cheeks showing more boils than beard. I'd seen him around at home. He had three blackened, chopped-off thumbs reefed to his belt. Harkon Gokstad glanced up from his seat in the stern and shot the boy a baleful look. Harkon had been on more raids and runs than the bunch of us put together. He was old and achy and worked the rudder, partly because he could read the tides by how the blood moved through his hands, and also because his old arms were poor for pulling oars. Put your ass on that bench, young man, Hakon said to the boy. We've got twelve hours' work between here and there. The boy coloured. He let his sword arm hang. He looked at his friends to see if he'd been humiliated in front of them and if he had what he needed to do about it. The whole boat was looking over him. Even Jav paused in his song. The other kid on his bench whispered something and scooted over. The boy sat and took the oar. The rowing and the chatter started up again. You could say that those people on Lindisfarne were fools, living out there on a tiny island without high cliffs or decent natural defences, and so close to us and the Swedes and the Norwegians, how we saw it, we couldn't afford not to come by and sack every now and again. But when we came into the bright little bay, a quiet fell over all of us. Even the hock choppers quit grabassing and looked. The place was wild with fields of purple thistle, and when the wind blew, it twitched and rolled like the hide of some fantastical animal shrugging in its sleep. Wildflowers spurted on the hills in fat red gouts. Apple trees lined the shore, and there was something sorrowful in how they hung so low with fruit. We could see a man making his way toward a clump of white-walled cottages, his donkey loping along behind him with a load. On the far hill I could make out the silhouette of the monastery, which still lacked a roof from when we'd burned it last. It was a lovely place, and I hoped there'd still be something left to enjoy after we got off the ship and wrecked it. We gathered on the beach, and already Jaff was in the lather. He did a few deep knee bends, got down in front of all of us and ran through some poses, cracking his bones and drawing out the knots in his muscles. Then he closed his eyes and said a silent prayer. His eyes were still closed when a man in a long robe appeared, picking his way down through the histle. Hakon Gokstad had a finger stuck in his mouth where one of his teeth had come out. He removed the finger and spat through the hole. He nodded up the hill at the figure heading our way. My, that bitch has some brass, he said. The man walked straight to Djaf. He stood before him and removed his hood. His hair lay thin on his scalp and had probably been blonde before it went white. He was old, with lines drawn on his face that could have been drawn with a dagger point. "'Nadod,' Diaf said, dipping his head slightly. "'Suppose you've been expecting us?' "'I certainly have not,' Nadod said. He brought his hand up to the rude wooden cross that hung from his neck. "'And I won't sport with you and pretend the surprise is entirely a pleasant one. Frankly, there isn't much here left worth pirating, so yes, it's a bit of a puzzle.' "'Uh-huh,' said Jaff. "'Can't tell us anything about a hailstorm or locusts and shit "'or a bunch of damn dragons coming around "'and scaring the piss out of everybody's wife. "'You don't know nothing about any of that.' Adod held his palms up and smiled piteously. "'No, I'm, I'm very sorry, I don't. "'We did send a monkeypox down to the Spanish garrison at Much Wenlock, "'but honestly, nothing your way.' "'Jaff's tone changed and his voice got loud and amiable. "'Huh!' "'Well, that's something.' "'He turned to us and held up his hands. "'Hey, boys, hate to break it to you, "'but it sounds like somebody fucked something up here. "'Old Nadod said it wasn't him, "'and as soon as he tells me just who in the hell it was "'behind the inconveniences we've been having, "'we'll get back under way. "'Right.' "'Nadod was uneasy, and I could see a chill run through him. "'If you're passing through Mercia, "'I, I know they've just gotten hold of this man Athoric. "'Supposed to be a very tough customer. "'You know, that was his leprosy outbreak last year, and—' "'Jaf was grinning and nodding, but Nadod looked suddenly ill. "'Jaf kept a small knife in his belt, "'and in the other way men smoked a pipe or chewed seeds. "'Jaf liked to strop that little knife. "'It was sharpened down to a little fingernail of blade. "'You could shave a fairy's ass with that thing, "'and while Nadod was talking, "'Jaf had pulled out his knife and drawn it neatly down the priest's belly.' At the sight of blood washing over the white seashells, everybody pressed forward, hollering and whipping their swords around. Diaf was overcome with crazed elation and he hopped up and down, yelling for everybody to be quiet and watch him. The Dodd was not dead. His insides had pretty much spilled out, but he was breathing, not crying out or anything, though, which you have to give him credit for. Diaf hunkered and flipped Nadod onto his stomach and rested a foot in the small of his back. Gnut was right beside me. He sighed and put his hand over his eyes. Oh, Lord, Are you doing a blood eagle? Yep, I said, looks that way. Jaff raised his palm for quiet. Now, I know most of the old-timers have seen one of these, but it might be a new one on some of you young men. The hawk choppers tittered. This thing is what we call a blood eagle, and if you'll just sit tight a second, you can see, well, it's a pretty wild effect. The men stepped back to give Jaff room to work. He placed the point of his sword to one side of Nadod's spine. He leaned into it and worked the steel in gingerly, delicately crunching through one rib at a time until he'd made an incision about a foot long. He paused to wipe sweat from his brow and made a parallel cut on the other side of the backbone. Then he knelt and put his hands into the cuts. He fumbled around in there for a second and then drew Nadod's lungs out through the slits. As Nadod huffed and gasped, the lungs flapped, looking sort of like a pair of wings. I had to turn away myself. It was very grisly stuff. The young men roared and Jaff stood there conducting the applause. Then, at his command, they all broke out their sieging tackle and swarmed up the hill. Only Gnut and Hakon and Earl Stender and me didn't go. Oral watched the others flock up towards the monastery, and when he was sure no one was looking back, he went to where Nadod lay dying and struck him hard on the skull with the back of the hatchet. We were all relieved to see those lungs stop quivering. Oral sighed and blessed himself. He said a funerary prayer, the gist of which was that he didn't know what this man's God was all about, but he was sorry that his humble servant had gotten sent up early, and on a bullshit pretext, too. He said he didn't know the man, but that he probably deserved something better the next time around. "'Cross all our water for this damn stupidity "'and a flock of sheep to shave at home,' Harkon grumbled. "'Gnut smiled and squinted up at the sky. "'My God, it's a fine day. "'Let's go up the hill and see if we can't scratch up a bite to eat.' "'We hiked to the little settlement on the hill. "'Some ways over where the monastery was, "'the young men were on a real binge. "'They dragged out a half-dozen monks.' hang them from a tree and then set the tree on fire. Our hands were stiff and raw from the row over, and we paused at the well in the centre of the village to wet our palms and have a drink. We were surprised to see the kid with the thumbs in his belt burst forth from a stand of ash trees, yanking some poor half-dead citizen along behind him. He walked over to where we were standing and let his victim collapse in the dusty boulevard. This is nice, he said to us. You'd make good chieftains standing around like this watching other people work. Why, you little turd, Hakon said and backhanded the boy across the mouth. The fellow lying there in the dust looked up and chuckled. The boy flushed. He plucked a dagger from his hip scabbard and stabbed Hakon in the stomach. There was a still moment. Hakon gazed down at the ruby stain spreading across his tunic. He looked greatly vexed. As the young man realised what he'd done, his features fretted up like a child trying to pout his way out of a spanking. He was still looking that way when Hakon cleaved his head across the eyebrows with one crisp stroke. Hakon cleaned his sword and looked again at his stomach. "'Some bitch,' he said, probing the wound with his pinky. "'It's deep. I believe I'm in a fix.' "'Nonsense,' said Knut. "'Just need to lay you down and stitch you up.' Earl, who was soft-hearted, went over to the man the youngster had left. He propped him up against the well and gave him the bucket to sip at. Across the road, an old dried-up farmer had come out of his house. He stared off at the smoke from the monastery rolling down across the bay. He nodded at us. We walked over. Hello, he said. I told him good day. He squinted at my face. Something wrong, I asked him. Apologies, he said. Just thought I recognised you is all. Could be. I was through here last fall. Uh-huh, he said. Now that was a hot one. Don't know why you'd want to come back. You got everything that was worth a damn on the last going over. Yeah, well, we're having a hard time figuring it out ourselves. Came to see your man Nadod. Wrong guy, looks like, but he got gotten anyway, sorry to say. The man sighed. Doesn't help me any. We all had to tithe in to cover his retainer. Do just as well without him, I expect. So what are you doing? Any looting? Why, you got anything to loot? Me? Oh no, uh, got a decent cook stove, but I can't see you toting that back on the ship. Don't suppose you got a coin hoard or anything buried out back? Jeez, am crow, I wish I did. Coin hoard? I'd really turn things around for myself. Yeah, well, I don't suppose you'd own up if you did. He laughed. You got that right, my friend, but I suppose you got to kill me or believe me, and either way, you got nothing out of the deal. He pointed at Harkon, who was leaning on Knut and looking pretty spent. Looks like your friend's got a problem. Unless you'd like to watch him die, why don't you bring him inside? Got a daughter who's Hell's Own Seamstress. The man, who was called Bruce, had a cosy little place. We all filed in. His daughter was standing by the stove. She gave a nervous little cry when we came through the door. She had a head full of thick black hair and a thin face, pale as sugar, a pretty girl. So pretty, in fact, that you didn't notice right off that she was missing an arm. We all balked and had a good stare at her. But Noot, you could tell, was truly smitten. The way he looked, blanched and wide-eyed, he could have been facing a wild dog instead of a good-looking woman. He rucked his hands through his hair and tried to lick the crust off his lips. Then he nodded and uttered a solemn hollow. Mary, Bruce said, this man's developed a hole in his stomach. I said we'd help fix him up. Mary looked at Hakon. Aha, she said. She lifted his tunic and surveyed the wound. Water, she said to Earl, who was looking on. Gnut eyed him jealously as he left for the well. Then Gnut cleared his throat. I'd like to pitch in, he said. Mary directed him to a little sack of onions in the corner and told him to chop. Bruce got a fire going in the stove. Mary set the water on and shook in some dry porridge. Hakon, who'd grown rather waxen, crawled up on the table and lay still. I don't feel like no porridge, he said. Don't worry about that, Bruce said. The porridge is just for the onions to ride in on. Gnut kept an eye on Mary as he bent over a small table and overdid it on the onions. He chopped and chopped, and when he chopped all they had, he started chopping the chopped up ones over again. Finally, Mary looked over and told him, that's fine, thank you, and Gnut laid the knife down. "'When the porridge was cooked, Mary threw in a few handfuls of onion "'and took the concoction over to Hakon. "'He regarded her warily, but when she held the wooden spoon out to him, "'he opened his mouth like a baby bird. "'He chewed and swallowed. "'Doesn't taste very good,' he said, but he kept eating anyway. "'A minute passed and then a peculiar thing occurred. "'Mary lifted Hakon's tunic again, put her face to the wound and sniffed at it. "'She paused a second and then did it again.' Why in the world is this, I asked. Got to do this with a wound like that, Bruce said. See if he's got the porridge illness. He doesn't have any porridge illness, I said. At least he didn't before now. What he's got is a stab hole in his stomach. Now stitch the man up. Won't do any good if you smell onions coming out of that hole. Means he's got the porridge illness and he's done for. Harkon looked up. Talking about a pierced bowel. Can't believe it's as bad as all that. Mary had another sniff. The wound didn't smell like onions. She cleaned Hakon with hot water and stitched the hole to a tight pucker. Hakon fingered the stitches and, satisfied, passed out. The five of us stood around and no one could think of anything to say. So, Gnut said in an offhand way, were you born like that? Like what, Mary said. Without both arms, I mean. Is that how you came out? "'Sir, that's a fine thing to ask my daughter,' Bruce said. "'It was your people that did it to her.' Gnut said, "'Oh.' And then he said it again, and then really no one could think of what to say. Then Mary spoke. "'It wasn't you who did it,' she said. "'But the man who did, I think I'd like to kill him.' Gnut told her if she would please let him know who it was, he'd consider it a favour if she'd let him intervene on her behalf. "'I said, "'I would like a drink.' Earl, what have you got in that wineskin? He said nothing. The skin hung from his shoulder and he put his hands on it protectively. I asked, what have you got to drink? Little bit of root brandy for your information, Harold. But it's got to last me the way back. I can't be damp and not have something to take the chill off. Knut was glad to have something to raise his voice about. "'Earl, you're a son of a bitch. "'We've been three weeks on the water for nothing. "'Hakon's going to maybe die, "'and you can't even see your way to splash a little taste around. "'Now that is the worst, the lowest thing I've ever heard.' "'So Earl opened up his wineskin, and we all had a dose. "'It was sweet and potent, and we drank and laughed and carried on. "'Hakon came too. "'His ordeal had put him in a mawkish bend of mind, "'and he raised a toast to his pretty surgeon "'and to the splendid day,' and how much it pleased him that he'd get to see the end of it. Bruce and Mary loosened up and we all talked like old friends. Mary told a lewd story about an apothecary who lived down the road. She was having a good time and did not seem to mind how close Gnut was standing. No one looking in on us would have known we were the reason this girl was missing an arm, and also the reason, probably, that nobody asked where Bruce's wife had gone. It was not long before we heard somebody causing a commotion at the well. Me and Gnut and Earl stepped outside. had stripped to his waist and his face and arm and pants looked about how you'd figure. He was hauling up buckets of cold water, dumping it over his head and shrieking with delight. The blood ran off in pink and watery. He saw us and came over. He said, shaking water from his hair. He jogged in place for a moment, shivered and then straightened up. "'Mercy, that was a spree. "'Not much loot to speak of, but a hell of a goddamn spree.' "'He massaged his thighs and spat a few times. "'Then he said, "'So, you do much killing?' "'Nah,' I said. "'Hakon killed that little what's-his-name lying over there. "'But no, we've just been sort of taking it easy.' "Hm." what about in there?' he asked, "'indicating Bruce's cottage. "'Who lives there? "'You kill them?' "'No, we didn't,' Oyle said. "'They helped put Hakon back together and everything. "'Seemed like good folks.' "'Nobody's killing them,' Knut said. "'So everybody's back at the monastery then?' I asked. "'Well, most of them. "'These young men had a disagreement over some damn thing "'and fell to cutting each other. "'Gonna make for a tough row out of here. "'Pray for wind, I guess.' "'Brown smoke was heavy in the sky "'and I could hear dim sounds of people screaming.' "'So here's the deal,' Jaff said. "'We bivouac here tonight, and if the weather holds, "'we shoot down to Mercia tomorrow "'and see if we can't sort out things with this fucker, Altheric." "'I don't know,' Earl said. "'No deal,' I said. "'This thing was a goose chase as it is. "'I got a wife at home and wheat straw to bail. "'I'll be damned if I'll row you to Mercia.' "'Jaff clenched his jaw. "'He looked at Gnut. "'You too?' "'Gnut nodded. "'Serious? Mutiny?' No, Nut said, we're just saying... We- Call it what it is, motherfucker, Djarf barked. You sons of bitches are mutinizing my operation. Look, Djarf, I said, nobody's doing anything to anybody. We just need to head on back. He yelled and snorted. Then he ran at us with his sword raised high and Nut had to slip behind him quickly and put a bear hug on him. I went over and clamped one hand over Djarf's mouth and pinched his nose shut with the other and after a while he started to cool down. We let him go. He stood there huffing and eyeing us and we kept our knives and things out and finally he put the sword back and composed himself. Okay, sure, I read you, he said. Fair enough, we go back. Oh, I should have told you, Olofsson found a stash of beef shells somewhere. He's going to cook those up for anybody who's left. Ought to be tasty, he turned and humped it back toward the bay. Knut didn't come down to the feast. He said he needed to stay at Bruce and Mary's to look after Hakon. Bullshit, of course, seeing as Hakon made it down the hill by himself and crammed his to stomach with about nine tough steaks. When the dusk started going black and still no Gnut, I legged it back up to Bruce's to see about him. Gnut was sitting on a hollow log outside the cottage, flicking gravel into the weeds. "'She's coming with me,' he said. "'Mary?' he nodded gravely. "'I'm taking her home with me to be my wife. She's in there talking it over with Bruce.' This a voluntary thing or an abduction-type deal? Knut looked off towards the bay as though he hadn't heard the question. She's coming with me. I mulled it over. You sure this is such a hot idea, bringing her back to live among our people, all things considering? He grew quiet. Any man that touches her or says anything unkind, it'll really be something different what I'll do to him. We sat a minute and watched the sparks rising from the bonfire on the beach. The warm evening wind carried smells of blossoms and wood smoke, and I was overcome with calm. We walked into Bruce's, where only a single suet candle was going. Mary stood by the window with her one arm across her chest. Bruce was worked up. When we came in, he moved to block the door. "'You get out of my house,' he said. "'You can't just take her. What little I've got!' Knut did not look happy, but he shouldered past and knocked Bruce on his ass. I went and put a hand on the old farmer who was quaking with rage. Mary did not hold her hand out to Gnut, but she didn't protest when he put his arm around her and moved her toward the door. The look she gave her father was a wretched thing, but still she went easy. With just one arm like that, what could she do? What other man would have her? Their backs were to us when Bruce grabbed up an awl from the table and made for Gnut. I stepped in front of him and broke a chair on his face, but still he kept coming, scrabbling at my sword, trying to snatch up something he could use to keep his daughter from going away. I had to hold him steady and run my knife into his cheek. I held it there like a horse's bit, and then he didn't want to move. When I got up off him, he was crying quietly. As I was leaving, he threw something at me and knocked the candle out. And you might think it was a good thing that Gnut had found a woman who would let him love her, And if she didn't exactly love him back, at least she would, in time, get to feeling something for him that wasn't so far from it. But what would you say about that crossing when the winds went slack and it was five long weeks before we finally fetched up home? Knut didn't hardly say a word to anybody, just held Mary close to him, trying to keep her soothed and safe from all of us, his friends. He wouldn't look me in the face, stricken as he was by the awful fear that comes with Getting hold of something you can't afford to lose. After that trip, things changed. It seemed to me that all of us were leaving the high and easy time of life and heading into deeper waters. Not long after we got back, Diaf had a worm crawl up a hole in his foot and had to give up raiding. Knut and Mary turned to homesteading full time, and I saw less of him. Just catching up over a jar turned into a hassle you had to plan two weeks in advance. And when we did get together, he'd laugh and jaw with me a little bit. But you could see he had his mind on other things. He'd gotten what he wanted, but he didn't seem too happy about it, just worried all the time. It didn't make much sense to me then, what Knut was going through, but after Peeler and me had our little twins and we put a family together, I got an understanding of how terrible love can be. You wish you hated those people, your wife and children, because you know the things the world will do to them because you've done some of those things yourself. It's crazy making. Yet you cling to them with everything and close your eyes against the rest of it. But still you wake up late at night and lie there listening for the creak and splash of oars, the clank of steel, the sounds of men rowing toward your home.
1: our story hope you enjoyed interesting a story about vikings being juxtaposed on today's culture are we entitled to happiness to getting what we want at any cost there's this little thing called the constitution that says i'm entitled to the pursuit of happiness so if you don't mind mr big shot best buy employee i'll just be taking this will smith cd and you can just get jiggy with it Obviously, the Drabble cast doesn't mind giving away shit for free to make you happy, hence the free podcast. But we're only able to do this through the generous support of people like this week's kick-ass donor of the week.
3: Yeah. Oh.
1: Ken, aka The Lone Mopper. Ken lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with his wife and the ghosts of two cats. There he runs an office cleaning business and listens to podcasts all night while checking behind his staff's necks. He looks forward to meeting Cthulhu someday, to ask him into his heart, and also to try his kick-ass recipe for calamari linguine. If you're in the Milwaukee area and needing your office cleaned, why not keep it in the Drabblecast family? Check out Ken's business at LoneMopper.com. Maybe he'll hook you up with some eldritch Italian cuisine, who knows. Hey, Ken, just bouncing ideas off you here, but what about this one? A cleaning service for guys who think a hot girl's coming over in 20 minutes. Run with it, my man. There's a market there. Thanks, Ken. We sure do appreciate the support. You folks at home, be like Ken and throw us a donation this week if you liked our show. Don't make us pillage your village, know what I'm saying? Find support options of our website, travelcast.org. We really appreciate whatever you can give. Alright, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, by Kent blue 82 with this one here. Wiping my own piss off the back of my head, I stormed out of the men's room. It was time to take the portal gun away from Drew. Oh, great. Don't get any ideas, portal players. Hundred <laughs> character stories, not counting spaces. We, of course, call them Twabbles and invite you to write as many as you'd like and post them in our discussion forums at forums.travelcast.org where we run a fun little weekly contest. We tweet the winners out in our Twitter feed, which, if you want to follow us, is at the Travelcast. And who knows, yours might get picked for next week's show. Give it a shot. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution on commercial no-derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend about us, write us a review on iTunes, and spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Brent Holmes. Brent is one in a long line of Royal Vegas weirdos, occupying a small swath of land in that horrible neon valley, where he's currently busy preparing for his second warm squiggly offspring to wriggle out of his wife's gestational egg sac. You can find more of his strange projects on his Facebook page under Barfing Rainbows. Our program this week was brought to you by Managing Editor Nikki Drayden, Submissions Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you to just get jiggy with it.
4: Hurt animal, but one team member had another darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawned something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.